Matthew 13. We're going to read from verse 1 to verse 23. Verse 1. The same day went Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside. And great multitudes were gathered together unto him, so that he went into a ship and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. And he spoke many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell upon stony places, where they had not much earth, and immediately they sprung up, because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But other fell into good ground, and brought forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, and some thirtyfold. Who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples came and said unto him, Why do you speak unto them in parables? And he said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. For whosoever has, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever has not, from him shall be taken away even what he has. Therefore do I speak unto them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which says, By hearing you shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing you shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is grown gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have they closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say unto you, that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which you see, and have not seen them, and to hear those things which you hear, and have not heard them. Hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, and understands it not, then comes the wicked one, and catches away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which received the seed by the wayside. But he that received the seed into stony places, the same as he that hears the word, and immediately with joy receives it. Yet has he no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, by and by he is offended. He also that receives seed among the thorns is he that hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. But he that receives seed into the good ground is he that hears the word and understands, which also bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Let's pray again. Father in heaven, Lord, your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. The secret things belong to you, and the things that belong to us are the things that you've revealed. Lord, I pray that this morning you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and give us understanding into the passage that we just read, that you would cause us to be listeners and learners, and that you'd give us ears to hear the, these things, God, that you have to tell us. Lord, speak to us this morning. Speak to each one. 
Cause us to know that you are speaking today, that you have spoken, and that we can hear your voice if we listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the great challenge when preaching through a book like Matthew is, on the one hand, to give application. People come to hear the preaching of God's Word, and you want to give application. You want to give things that, are, that can be taken away, relevant to today, lessons we can learn. But on the other hand, when you deal with a book like Matthew, you also want to present what Matthew is getting at. Matthew wrote this book, and this book has a purpose. Every chapter has a purpose. Why he, he wrote this chapter has a purpose. And sometimes there's a tendency with preachers to read a chapter like Matthew chapter 13, for example, and completely ignore the history behind it, completely ignore Matthew's flow of thought, and just sort of take a verse here and there and give some general principle for us to take home. They'll pick a lesson without looking at its context. But brothers and sisters, Matthew, in this gospel, is presenting us with an incredibly rich history and theology. And he has his own flow of thought. So when you're preaching from Matthew, you want to tap into his flow of thought. You want to tap into his purpose in writing this chapter. The danger, of course, is that it just becomes a history lesson and not applicable to our lives. But I think when we have both of those things, when we tap into what Matthew is trying to tell us, what Matthew's purpose was in writing this, and we understand the background and the history, then we'll have more to apply to our lives. Matthew has already shown us in this gospel, in his presentation of Jesus, he's shown us the birth of Jesus Christ. We've seen his genealogy. We saw the circumstances of his birth, the miraculous circumstances of his birth, and the controversy surrounding his birth. Jesus was raised in relative, in relative obscurity. When Jesus showed up on the scene in the public sphere, Jesus came to John the Baptist, his forerunner, whom Matthew says was the forerunner that God promised, that God had prophesied. We can read about that in Isaiah Matthew was going before the Messiah. Jesus showed up and was baptized by Matthew. By, by John, excuse me. That would be an anachronism. <laughs> um, Matthew presents to us the teachings of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 to 7. He doesn't want to show us the miraculous birth of Jesus, the supernatural coming forth of Jesus, but also the teachings of Jesus. We read the Sermon on the Mount. After the Sermon on the Mount, we moved to a presentation of the miracles of Jesus, some of the miracles of Jesus. We'll see more. And we see Jesus clashing with the Pharisees. And now Matthew turns our attention, in Matthew 13, he turns our attention to the parables of Jesus. In Matthew 13, he compiles together the teachings of Jesus in parables. Now, Jesus is famous for parables. How many of you know this? That when peop most common people, even if they don't read the Bible much, they know that Jesus gave parables. And most people would know some of those parables as well. Jesus is very famous for his parables. His parables 
were simple, rich, and carried power. They made sense to the common man. He appealed to common sense. And for this reason, they're famous and they endure. They're timeless. Now, Jesus, we see, he doesn't just teach in parables here in chapter 13. We've already seen already in Matthew, Jesus talking in parables, comparing himself and his teaching to life and how people would understand life. For example, we've already seen Jesus said, you are a city on a hill. A city on a hill can't be hidden. Everyone would have known that. Yeah, of course you can't hide a city on a hill, right? He says, that's what you're like as the people of God in the world. You can't hide the people of God. You stand out because of what you believe, because you know God. He says, that is what the people of God are like in the world. Jesus talked about wine and wineskins. Jesus talked about sheep being among wolves. And as we're going to see later in Matthew, there's seven more parables that he's going to give, even outside of this chapter. But Matthew here compiles the parables, you could say, of the kingdom of God, where Jesus is teaching us about what the kingdom of God is like. Matthew puts these together. The, the description of the kingdom. A parable is, you could say, comparable to something in life, in nature, in experience. And Jesus is showing us what the kingdom of God is like. In one sense, this chapter and the parables in it are a reflection upon Jesus' own ministry. The context is, Jesus has been clashing with the Pharisees. Jesus is receiving rejection from the Pharisees and from the people who follow the Pharisees. And we're going to see in these parables a theme of rejection, a theme of not being accepted. All parables, all the parables bear this theme. An estimation of his ministry and a critical lesson for the disciples to learn about the kingdom of God, as we'll see in just a moment. Now, we read here the well-known parable of the sower. The sower goes out to sow. Some fall along the path. Some seed falls along the shallow ground. Some among thorns and some in good soil. And Jesus concludes this well-known parable by saying, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Kind of a curious saying. Don't we all have ears to hear? And if you have ears, wouldn't you hear? If you're an earshot... Look at verse 18 with me. What Jesus means when he says, whoever has ears to hear, he means hearing is understanding the meaning of the parable. You see this in verse 18 when he's, he begins to tell the disciples what it means. He says, hear therefore the parable of the sower. Well, they had already heard it, right? He's not just telling it to them again. He's saying, understand what it means. So after Jesus gives the parable to the crowd, he says, basically, hear it. If you have ears to hear it, if you can understand it, then understand it. And now, when Jesus says this, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear, it prompts from the disciples a question. Look at verse 10. The disciples came and said unto him, why do you speak to the people in parables? Why do you teach in parables? Now, in Mark and in Luke, 
we actually find a different question is asked to Jesus. They actually ask him, what does the parable mean? Can you explain to us the parable of the sower? And these two questions are basically related because they would ask Jesus this, look, we don't understand this parable that you're giving. Can you please explain to us what it means? And at the same time, can you explain to us why you're giving parables that, you need, that, that we need further explanation for? Why don't you just speak clearly, Jesus? So those two questions are related. Please explain to us the parable. And why are you even speaking in parables? Why can't you just speak clearly? Now Jesus' answer has sparked controversy among interpreters, among Christians, and those who read the Bible. Jesus' answer has sparked controversy because in essence, it seems like what he's saying is this. He answers their question by saying, I speak in parables because it's not given to people to understand. Isn't that kind of strange? Doesn't that seem like a strange saying of Jesus? I sp the reason why I'm speaking in parables in answer to your question is because it's not given to them to understand. It seems that Jesus is intentionally not helping people to understand. Now, of course, you can see how this would bother many readers of the Bible and many admirers of Jesus. Why would he speak in a way that would intentionally be difficult to understand? Mark is even more blunt. Jesus says, I speak in parables so that hearing they will not hear. That's what he says in Mark. Now, some people seek to avoid this conclusion by pointing to Matthew 13, 13. Look at verse 13, where Jesus says, Therefore speak I unto them in parables, because they see, seeing they see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And some people try to say, well, look at verse 13 here. It says he speaks them in parables because they don't see. So it's not the cause of them not seeing. It's because they don't see that he speaks in parables. And what that basically means is he's speaking in parables to simplify the message so they can understand it. Because they're having such a hard time understanding, I'm going to teach them in parables because teaching in parables is a great way to teach and make people understand. You follow the, the line of reasoning there? But brothers and sisters, those who say this also say Mark is wrong. Because it's a lot harder to escape the blunt saying in Mark. He says, I speak in parables so that they don't see and they don't hear. And actually, those who say that, they say Matthew was actually getting it right and Mark was interpreting Jesus wrong. This will not do, brothers and sisters, for three reasons. Number one, these parables didn't seem to help the disciples understand. <laughs> right? If a parable was meant to help people understand... The disciples needed further explanation, and Jesus gave them the interpretation. So the question is, why wouldn't Jesus just give the interpretation then when he's sitting in the boat speaking to the crowds? Why wouldn't, after giving the parable, then would he explain himself? Why would he only explain himself to the disciples? Number two, verse 11 and verse 12 agree with Mark. Jesus says, the reason why I speak in parables is because it is given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to them it is not given. So he explicitly says, here's why. It's not given to them to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. In verse 12 he says, whoever has, to him shall be given. 
and he shall have more abundance. Whoever has not, from him shall be taken away even what he has. And then in verse, uh, excuse me, and then the third reason why this interpretation will not do that Jesus is giving parables to help them understand rather than to intentionally make them not understand is that by doing so, Jesus is in keeping with Isaiah 6, verse 9, which Matthew quotes here, and Jesus, Jesus himself said, look at verse 14 and 15. Jesus says, In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which says, By hearing you shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing you shall see and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, their ears are dull of hearing, their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. In keeping with Isaiah, if you go to the Old Testament and read Isaiah 6, verse 9, it's actually in Isaiah... God commands Isaiah to go and make the people's eyes and hearing dull. You ever, do you remember that in Isaiah chapter 6? Isaiah says, who will go, or God says, who will go? And Isaiah says, send me. And then he says, make the eyes of this people heavy and their ear, their hearing dull. By Jesus teaching in parables so that they won't hear, Jesus stands in line with the Old Testament teaching that blindness is a judgment from God. Blindness and deafness is actually a judgment from God. It's actually something that God gives to people so that they will not hear and so that they will not see. That's a hard thing to accept, isn't it? I'm not saying that's an easy thing to accept, but that's what the Bible teaches us. That a judgment from God is that you do not see and that you do not hear. Now, it's not arbitrary. When God said to Isaiah, make the heart of this people uh, to not understand, he's not saying that to a people that's innocent. Already we've seen in Isaiah chapter 1 through 5, we've established that they're sinners and rebels against God. God doesn't harden someone. God doesn't blind someone. God doesn't judge someone who is is undeserving of that. God would then be unjust if he did that. God does not harden and judge those who aren't sinners. But if someone is a sinner, then they need to beware because God can indeed judge you in this way and blind you, giving you what you deserve, actually giving you what you want. You don't want to listen to God, so then he takes away your ability to hear. You don't want to look and consider, and so he takes away your ability to see. The Apostle Paul talked about this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It says, God gives people strong delusion so that they cannot believe because they do not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. In response to a person not Loving truth, considering God, listening to God, in response to a person hardening their own heart against God, one of the judgments God can give is delusion. Brothers and sisters, the proof that Israel would not listen, even if God spoke clearly, We see this at the end of the book of Acts, the very last chapter of the book of Acts, the very last thing that happens in the book of Acts, if you remember, the Apostle Paul is in Rome, and 
he has the Jewish leaders visit him and he explains to them out of the scriptures clearly Jesus Christ. You remember this? He's not speaking in parables. He's got the scriptures. He's preaching the gospel clearly, arguing and persuading that Jesus is the Christ. They don't believe him. And Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9. The heart of this people is dull. Their ears are closed. Their eyes are closed. Paul quotes this. This is a very important verse in the New Testament, in the Bible, the whole Bible. This verse about the, their eyes being closed and their ears being closed. Isaiah 6, 9, we find it at the end of the book of Acts. When Paul's speaking clearly to them, they still won't believe. So one can't say, well, if Jesus had only spoken clearly to them, then they would have believed. We see that is not true. Brothers and sisters, because of Israel's sin against God, they professed themselves to be wise, and therefore God treated them as wise. You see, when someone professes to be wise, they say, I know, I know it all. I know what it's all about. I understand the scriptures. I get it. Then God says, okay, I'm going to treat you as wise, and he gives them a riddle that they can't break, that they can't understand. You think you know? Okay, here you go. Parables. And they stumble at them and they fall at them because they really don't understand. They think they do and they don't. And the parables expose them and they expose them as those who are not wise. Brothers and sisters, the mystery of God, the mysteries of God are for those who take a listener's position when it comes to God. Not someone who professes to be wise, but someone, as Paul says in, another, in, a, in a letter to the Corinthians, he says, if anyone thinks he's wise, let him first become a fool if he wants to be wise. Basically is this, you need to take a listener's position when it comes to God. You need to take a humble position when it comes to God. You need to not think that you know, that you know it all, that you don't need to listen to God, that when Jesus says something to you that maybe doesn't agree with what you think, maybe you need to reevaluate what you think. How many people don't do that? How many people think, I already know what religion is all about. I already know how to get to heaven. And you're wrong, you're wrong, Paul, you're wrong, Eli, you're wrong, Christians, you're wrong, New Testament. That's not how it is. They won't listen. They won't learn. See, when you take a listener's position, you're basically admitting that you don't know, that God knows, and that he speaks, and I listen, and I learn from him. I think this is exemplified in John chapter 6, verse 68. When Jesus is giving some really hard sayings to the crowd, and in John 6, Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot, you have no life in you. He says this to the crowd. Now, as Christians, we're so familiar with this, maybe we don't see the shock value of it, but that's an outrageous saying for someone to say in the first century. You have to eat me to be saved. <laughs> and many people, it says, said, this is it, we're done. We know this is craziness. What did Peter say? 
Peter exemplifies the humble listener's position. He knows Jesus is the Christ. He knows that Jesus must know. I don't understand this thing. Peter didn't understand it. I'm not, the disciples didn't even get it. But the disciples did get this, that he was the Son of God. There was abundance of evidence for that. And so instead of saying, I must know more than the Son of God, Peter said, Lord, who are we? Because Jesus said, are you going to go too? And Peter said, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Brothers and sisters, we need to have that kind of an attitude towards God and towards his son, Jesus Christ. There are many hard things in the Bible, hard, things, hard sayings in the Bible, things that are difficult to understand, things that seem to go against what we would think is, is right. But we need to have confidence that God himself is wiser than men. His wisdom, though it seems strange to the wisdom of men, is in fact true. And we need to listen and learn from him and understand his wisdom and not our own. What does it say in 1 Corinthians? The preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. That another would die on the cross for your sins and take your place so you could be saved by grace is crazy to most people in this world. To us, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? To most people in this world, it doesn't make any sense. And then they reject it because it's foolishness to them. They said, this doesn't make sense. This is wrong. This is, this is not according to the law. No one would do that. That doesn't make any sense. Instead of saying, God's saying this is what happened. God is commanding me to believe this. God must know. Can you please help me to understand this, God? Show me that Christ is your wisdom. In verse 12... Jesus says, whoever has, to him shall be given. Has what? You ever stop to ask that question? Let me suggest to you, in context, Jesus is talking about, whoever has an ear, it shall be given. He says in verse 9, he who has ears, let him hear. And in verse 12, whoever has, to him shall be given. Whoever has an ear, it shall be given. But whoever doesn't have an ear, even what he has shall be taken away. Even what he seems to have shall be taken away. If you have an ear, an ear is a listener's position to God. Not where you profess yourself to be wise and that you know and you won't listen to God, but you have an ear to listen to God. God gives you the mysteries of the kingdom. God explains to you his meaning when you take that position of humility. And this is an amazing thing because the only reason a person has an ear like that, brothers and sisters, is God's amazing grace. He gives you that ear to hear. And when he gives you the ear to hear and you have an ear, then he gives more. You remember in John chapter 1, we read this amazing saying that whatever we've received, we've received because of his fullness, grace for grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. God gives you an ear to hear, and because he's given you an ear to hear, he gives you understanding. He multiplies his grace upon you. But if you don't have an ear to hear, that's your own fault, and a judgment against God is that he actually takes away what you think you have. He withholds his revelation. He gives you strong delusion. 
Brothers and sisters, it is a dangerous thing to not listen to God. It is a dangerous thing to not have an ear to hear God's word. If you today are not listening to God, if you have an attitude today that you know better than God, if you have an attitude today that when you read things that Jesus says or that God says in the word and you say, ah, that can't be, I don't believe it, because you are basing your own thoughts upon your own wisdom and not listening to God, that's a dangerous place to be. And if you're like that, you need to seriously consider God's word and seriously change and listen to him. Who knows that already you're being given over to strong delusion? Please recognize that and humble yourself before Jesus and the word of God. In verse 16, Jesus says, Blessed are you. However, if you do hear, you are in a blessed and fortunate place because you are seeing and learning from Jesus. Isn't that a wonderful thing? This doesn't just apply to the disciples then, but to anyone today who understands Jesus Christ as the Son of God and is listening and learning from him. Blessed are you. Happy are you, Jesus said. You have a lot to rejoice about. And you know what? Those of us, even today, who are learning from Christ and learning the mysteries of the kingdom of God, we're learning things that many prophets and righteous men of old wanted to know. We're in an amazing, amazingly blessed place. Brothers and sisters who believe, we're in an amazingly blessed place. And I think sometimes we take it for granted. Things haven't always been this way. And for many people, even today, they don't know. Blessed are you, Jesus says. Now we turn to the interpretation of the sower. The interpretation of the parable of the sower. Jesus says, hear the parable of the sower. He doesn't start this parable by saying, the kingdom of heaven is like, as the other parables, but certainly this parable is about the kingdom of heaven. It's about the kingdom of God. We see this already in verse 11, because Jesus said that he's talking about the mysteries of the kingdom. And in verse 19, he says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and understands it not, he's talking about the kingdom of God. I want to draw our attention to this phrase, the word of the kingdom. We often talk about the parable of the sower. We know that the seed is sown to the path, and we know that the seed is sown on the different grounds. But what exactly is the seed that is sown? Jesus tells us here, it's the word of the kingdom. He's talking about his teaching. He's not giving his teaching here, per se. He's not explaining what the word of the kingdom is here in this parable. But he's saying the word of the kingdom, he's pointing to his teaching. What have we already seen Jesus teach in the Gospel of Matthew? For him to say this phrase, the word of the kingdom, he assumes people know what he's already talking about. What have we already seen? Let me suggest this to you, brothers and sisters, that when Jesus says, when, any, when, it, when someone hears the word of the kingdom, and that's what's being sown, he's referring, he's referring specifically to his teachings, that, which we can find contained in the Sermon on the Mount. Have you ever connected the parable of the sower with the Sermon on the Mount? 
I don't know how many of us have. Usually with a parable of the sower, we leave sort of general, don't we? The seed is the word of God. What's the word of God? It's just the word of God, general. Let me suggest to you, Jesus is being specific here. The word of the kingdom, the message of the kingdom, the things Jesus has taught regarding the kingdom of God. What have we seen on the sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount? Teaching Jesus' teachings on the kingdom. Let me refresh our memory. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness is greater than the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no way enter the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom, but he that does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now think of this. Jesus shows up in the first century to a crowd of people who have been instructed for years by the Pharisees. And he's preaching the message of the kingdom. This is what he's referring to in the parable of the sower. He comes to these people and he says, he basically says, much of what you've been taught is wrong. You see, the Pharisees are telling you, rightly, that in order for you to enter the kingdom of God, you need to be righteous. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. I agree. The Pharisees are wrong when they tell you that they are righteous, that they are entering the kingdom of God, and that if you want to enter, you need to be like them. That they're setting the example for you. They travel land and sea to make disciples of themselves. The Pharisees are wrong. Unless your righteousness is greater than theirs, you're not going to make it. They're not going to make it. That's going to blow some people's minds in the first century. What do you mean the Pharisees aren't going to make it? They're, they're the great guys. They're the ones we're all looking up to. No, they're not going to make it. You need to have a righteousness that's greater than that. And Jesus points to those whom the Pharisees would never consider to be candidates for the kingdom, the poor in spirit. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs, to them, belong the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that an amazing mystery, is it not? That just blows this world's mind. That those whom the world think, and this is true today and it will be true on Judgment Day, that those people whom the world thinks are going to go to heaven are not. And those people whom the world thinks is not going to have, go to heaven are. What a mystery. And the issue is righteousness. Jesus tells the people in the Sermon on the Mount, righteousness is absolute perfection. Jesus says, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you need to be perfect. What's perfect mean? As God is perfect. That's what perfect means. God is not half perfect. God is not semi-perfect. He's not working on perfection. He's morally perfect. And if you want to enter life, you must be perfect as God is perfect. A young man came to Jesus. Had, he'd obviously been instructed by the Pharisees on how to get to the kingdom of heaven. He said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus saw through this man, knew where he was coming from. Jesus said, what does Moses say? What a, that's a great way to answer that question, by the way. What do I have to do to be saved? What does Moses say? 
keep the commandments. I've done it. I'm good, right? Do I lack anything? Jesus says, yep, you lack one thing. One thing you lack. And he says, if you want to be saved, if you want to be perfect, he says in another gospel, if you want to enter into life, sell everything you have and give to the poor. Just one thing. That's all it. Just one thing you lack. And if you don't do this one thing, you won't, you won't enter the kingdom of God. To get into the kingdom of God, you could keep all the commandments but one and you don't make it. You've got to be perfect. can't lack one thing. For that man, it was giving away his things to the poor. Whatever it may be, you must have a perfect obedience. This is not what the Pharisees were teaching. Jesus taught this. This is the message of the kingdom of God. As Christians, when we share the gospel, this is what we're sharing is the message of the kingdom of God. To get into the kingdom, you need to be totally perfect. gospel or the good news of the kingdom is that the poor in spirit to those, to them does the kingdom of God belong. To you who recognize that you're unrighteous. To, to you who recognize that you are poor. Jesus does not mean materially poor. He means spiritually poor. He literally means, as we've talked about before, You've been reduced to a beggar in the spiritual world. Now you're begging from God. Now you're saying, God, I got nothing to offer you. Do you have something to offer me? If you don't offer me something, I'm going to die. To those people belong the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that what a Christian is, brothers and sisters? Isn't a Christian, and if you talk to a genuine Christian, is a Christian not someone who is a beggar, who is poor in spirit, who is saying, it's not me offering to God anything. It's not why I'm entering the kingdom. Because God has given to me one who is hungry and thirsty for righteousness. God has given to me his own flesh and blood for me to eat. Of course, people might not understand that. A Christian is one who has received from God eternal life as a gift of his mercy and of his grace. A Christian is not one who's making a deal with God or a bargain with God or trade with God. A Christian is a beggar who has received the surprising gift of his mercy. Even though we've all fallen short of the glory of God and even though we're all unrighteous and even though none of us are perfect by our works, all of us lack more than one thing. The good news of the gospel and the whole point of Jesus Christ and what he, wants to, what he wants you to know, and if you miss this, you miss it all, is that God loves you and that God loves sinners and that God sent his son into the world to be the ransom for our sins, to be the ransom for our eternal life, and that he died, as we sang this morning, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. He died so that we could have eternal life. He paid our debt. He shed his blood. He took the cup of God's wrath. He bore our sins in his body on the tree, something that was horrible to him so that we would not have to and so that we could be saved. And he did it because he loves us. 
And that's the main point. That's the gospel of the kingdom. And in order to see that, you can't listen to the Pharisees. Or the Pharisees' children today. In the gospel of Luke, where Luke records Jesus teaching the parable of the sower, Jesus says that it's all about believing to be saved. If you want to ever go and compare that, Jesus says that the word of God is sown and those, they would believe and be saved. This is Jesus' own words. They would believe and be saved, but the devil comes and snatches that word out of their hearts. As we've already seen, men are blind and they don't see the truth of the gospel. They don't see their own sin. They refuse to see it and God gives them over to what they want. See, the devil, we don't have a view of God as Christians that the God and the devil are equals and they're fighting a battle over Leonardo's soul. The devil is but a tool to God. The devil asks permission from God to do whatever he does. But as judgment, God can hand someone over to the devil. And the devil, his main objective is to get you not to believe the gospel. His main objective is not to turn you into a licentious sinner. His main objective is to get you to go to church and put on your Sunday's best and be really self-righteous and think that you're going to get to heaven because you're a good person. The devil's objective is for you not to hear the message of the kingdom of God. That's his objective. And if you think it isn't, then you're being fooled by him already. The devil blinds men from believing in Christ by making them see only what the law says, but from a corrupt, Pharisaic point of view. The devil's ministers are Pharisees. And Jesus came to give us life and to destroy the works of the devil. In this parable, Jesus gives us three reasons why people are kept from believing the gospel and being saved and entering into the kingdom of God. As we've already said, number one, people are kept from believing the gospel and being saved because they don't understand the message of the kingdom. The devil blinds them from seeing what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. You don't understand it, doesn't make sense to you, foolishness, the devil's blinded you and you can't believe, you won't believe and be saved. The second thing Jesus says is that what keeps men from believing and being saved is that persecution keeps men from believing and being saved. A person hears the message of the kingdom of God and they grab a hold of it only as long as there's no persecution, only as long as there's no tribulation, but Jesus says inevitably tribulation arises on account of the word of God. This is religious persecution. And they give up. They show that they don't really understand it. They show that they don't really believe it because they show what they really think is true and what they really believe is worth something. What they fear more is losing their own lives or their reputation than losing their own soul. Now, if they really believed the gospel, they wouldn't uh, think to give up the gospel on account of persecution. The Apostle Paul is a good example. He's probably persecuted more than anyone else in this world. He said, 
These things are light afflictions compared to the eternal weight of glory. Right? None of these things move me. That's what Paul said. None of these things bother me. None of these things move me. Light afflictions. Why? Because I'm seeing the eternal weight of glory. Because I'm seeing what's truly worth it. Because I'm seeing, as Jesus said, what does it profit to gain the whole world and lose your own soul? It doesn't. I'm seeing that. And so therefore, tribulation, no big deal. Persecution, bring it on. I got eternal life. When someone caves in and gives up following Christ because of persecution, it shows they are not seeing that to lose Christ is to lose your own soul. The third reason Jesus gives us why people are kept from believing and being saved is the distractions of life keep men from believing and considering their eternal state. The distractions of life keep men from thinking about their true need. They seem to look at other things, other needs, other desires, and they forget the ultimate need, the ultimate concern, which is your soul in Christ. Charles Spurgeon gave an example, a historical example, of uh, Napoleon, Napoleon Bonaparte. Now, when Napoleon was ruling in France, Napoleon put a famous duke to death. And the people thought this was unjust. He had this man executed. And there was a great outcry on account of it. It would seem that the people were going to have a counter-revolution and overthrow Napoleon because of him executing this famous duke. And you know what Napoleon did in response to this? Spurgeon tells us, Napoleon put on a grand spectacle, a ballet in Paris. He had a ballet come to town, famous, new, exciting. And what happened was, is the people went to the ballet, and all they could talk about after that was how amazing the ballet was. And they forgot about the Duke. And they forgot about how angry they were about what Napoleon had done. They were excited about ballet. This is an example of how men and women are distracted from thinking about those things which are most important. The message of the kingdom. Are you righteous? Are you right with God? Are you aware of the fact that you need to be a beggar? That you as a sinner need mercy from God? Are you putting your faith in Jesus? Are you seeing this as your main concern? And unfortunately, many men and women, they're kept from believing the gospel because of trite distractions in whatever form they may be. And I think in our day, in the 21st century here, we've got an abundance of distractions that keep men from seriously considering their own soul. There's always something that can grab your attention today, isn't there? There's always a ballet, a grand spectacle, every half an hour that keeps men from believing. And lastly, when Jesus talks about the good soil, in essence, what makes good soil is that the soil is free from these three 
obstacles. Number one, good soil is the kind of soil that hears the gospel of the kingdom and understands it, Jesus says. You hear the Sermon on the Mount and you get it. Oh, I'm toast if perfection is what's required. Better not follow the Pharisees. Good soil. The devil doesn't snatch it away. Good soil is that which, when you understand the word of God, when you understand the gospel, you realize this is worth giving up everything for. This is worth, as he, t- he says later in a parable, selling all I've got and buying this field and getting this pearl. This is worth losing my life for. You'll notice that being free from that second obstacle, the fear of persecution, comes from understanding the word in the first place. And good soil is also that which is freed from the distractions that tempt us, that tempt us and tempt to take away our mind from what is our most greatest concern. Good soil is that which says, this is important. This, is, this demands my attention. This is my chief concern for the rest of my life. Of course, that comes from understanding, doesn't it? We cut freedom from these obstacles comes from understanding the message of the kingdom. Let me ask you this morning, are you free from these obstacles? Do you understand and believe the message of the kingdom of God, the message of righteousness, the message of what is required of you and that you fail it, and the message of the grace and the mercy of God in Christ? Do you understand that? And if you understand that, are you free from those obstacles of fear, of persecution, and other distractions. Ask yourself that this morning. This is the most important thing in your life. In closing, I'd like to say that this parable is not merely a parable about the inner heart condition of men. It fits in context in the flow of thought that we have seen already in Matthew. This parable is about the kingdom of God, the mystery of the kingdom of God, and how the kingdom of God, unlike what people thought in the first century, would largely be rejected by men. This parable teaches us how we're supposed to think about the kingdom of God in the earth and the coming of Jesus. In view of the rejection that Jesus has experienced in the preceding chapters, he gives these parables, as I've said, as sort of a reflection or estimation of his ministry. He comes, he preaches, and when the Messiah comes, everyone thinks that Israel was going to turn and be saved and the whole world would be converted to God. Jesus says, hold on here. The Messiah comes, the word of the kingdom is preached, and guess what happens? There are people that reject it. There are people that get excited about it and fall away. There are people that get distracted. Some people believe, of course. Of course, this has to have the disciples scratching their head a bit. Really? I thought when the Messiah comes, everything changes. And you see, the way that we think today, brothers and sisters, as Christians, this is very normal for us, right? We, we actually, we encourage each other all the time with this, don't we? We say, you know what? People are going to reject it, and there's, there's four different kinds of soils, and it's just that time. We say that, and that's true. But Jesus had to teach his disciples this lesson. And as we're going to see in the other parables that we're going to look at in this same chapter, the same theme is over and over and over again repeated. That is rejection. 
Jesus is teaching the disciples that the appearance of the Messiah does not necessarily mean everything is going to change. We're used to it. They had to learn this lesson. But brothers and sisters, one day, Jesus Christ will return and everything is going to change. And at that time, every knee will bow and every tongue, that includes your tongue and your knee, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let me urge you to confess him now rather than later. Are you like those who hear and believe and are saved? Are you like those who hear but don't really hear? Do you have an ear to hear what God is saying? Listen to Jesus Christ. Believe in him and what he says and be saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, these are sobering things that we've read. I pray that everyone here would take the words of Christ seriously this morning, that we would consider, that we wouldn't be distracted or afraid. Lord, whatever obstacles the devil puts in our path, Lord, may nothing stop us from listening to your Son. Maybe we, may we be willing to lose everything for the truth of the gospel and save our own soul. May we not take lightly the warnings and the danger of not listening. Lord, thank you for coming into this world to die for us. Thank you for shedding your blood for our sins so we can be right with you even though we're guilty. Thank you that you can wash the stain whiter than snow. Thank you for your amazing love that's been revealed. May everyone know it, Lord, before it's too late. And may those who do know it rejoice and be glad and sing praises to you because of your awesome and wonderful deliverance. Blessed are those who hear and see these things. Lord, we give you thanks and praise in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.